Well, welcome everybody to Downtown Harbor Church. If it is your first time here, my name is John. I am the lead pastor. Um, before I forget, I want to thank Adam. The last two weeks he spoke here and he did a fantastic job. Gave me a chance, my wife and I a chance to go away on a vacation, which was great. We went to Italy, and um, one of the souvenirs I picked up was a sinus infection. So if I sound nasally, that is what is going on. But if it is your first time here today, we are wrapping up this series called Greatest Hits. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to any of them, that's okay. They don't build on each other. Let me explain to you what the whole series is about. It is uh, our opinion that within the scripture, there are certain stories, verses, principles, concepts, ideas that have risen to almost pop status, that, that preachers preach on a lot, that Christians memorize a lot, that we see all over the place, and they have become, in essence, greatest hits. Now, when you think about songs that are greatest hits, these songs that are just constantly played on the radio over and over and over again, what happens is that the more that we hear those songs, the less that we actually hear them. They begin to almost fade into the background and become white noise, and we forget why those greatest hits from that particular artist became so popular, why they were so powerful and important. And if you're not careful, the same thing can happen with the Scripture, because we hear these stories so frequently that we, we forget why they became bedrock or foundational to the Christian faith. And each week, we've just kind of been hitting pause and, and taking a look at some of these verses and stories and trying to remember why we love them to begin with. And so today I'm gonna wrap up by looking at what I believe to be one of Jesus's most controversial statements. And as I was reading the gospel accounts of what he was talking about today, every single gospel author, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, wrote about it. And I have to imagine that when they were detailing this account, when they heard Jesus speak or they heard the account and they were writing it down, I have to imagine that they never in a million years would have thought that the words that they were writing would have such far-reaching effects in the world, as far as even today. Because this verse that we're gonna to read today, God used it as a promise for the entire world. The ancient Romans used it as a basis for persecution against Christians, and later on in life, Christians would actually use it as a source of division within the church itself. And all of this, because there's, there's so much going on, all of this finds itself rooted in the seemingly simple phrase, Take this and eat it, for this is my body. That's our greatest hit for the day. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you have probably heard this phrase before. In fact, you've probably heard it in more of a ritualistic fashion. This is what communion or the Lord's Supper is based around. Those two words, by the way, are interchangeable, so you're gonna hear me using them different ways today. Um, but as far as I'm concerned, this verse is the quintessential greatest hit. Because we hear it so much, particularly those of us who might come from a background where you took communion every single week, you more than anyone heard it so frequently that perhaps we're not even hearing it anymore. And we've forgotten why it was so important, or perhaps maybe we never knew or realized why it was so powerful. And so today I just wanna to spend some time looking at this verse and taking a look at the account as a whole as we try to learn more about today's greatest hit. So this account in this verse finds itself in the midst of the Jewish holiday known as Passover. Now, if you're not Jewish in the room or maybe you don't know what Passover is, let me briefly explain it to you. This is an ancient holiday. For now, it's thousands and thousands of years old. But way back when, the, the Jewish people found themselves in captivity under Egypt. And God wanted to liberate the Jews from under Egyptian captivity. 
And so he sent Moses into Egypt to speak to the Pharaoh and tried to get him to let his people go. Pharaoh wouldn't budge. And God sent plague after plague, trying to force the hand of the Pharaohs. Now, eventually they got to what is known as the the final plague. And God said, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm going to send my angel into Egypt and I'm going to kill the firstborn son of everyone in this city. But he goes to Moses and he goes, here's the difference though. I need every Jewish person in the city to slaughter a lamb to take the blood of that lamb and to put it on their doorpost. That way, when my angel comes through the city that night, he will know that that house belongs to a Jew and he will pass over that house, sparing them from death. And the Pharaoh relented. He was crushed because all the firstborn sons were killed and he cast the Jews out. And they left in such a hurry that as they were grabbing their things, the story tells us that they had grabbed their bread before it even had a chance to rise. It was unleavened bread. And every year since then, when God freed them, they celebrate that passing over by eating the unleavened bread, what we now kind of call matzah. That's what the story picks up today. It says this in Mark chapter 14. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, that matzah bread, When the Passover lamb is sacrificed, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go to prepare the Passover meal for you? Continues. So Jesus sent two of them into Jerusalem with these instructions. As you go into the city, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him. So let's pause here for a second. So this is one of those verses that we would read and we kind of cruise right past because it just seems like detail. It's like, all right, Jesus has just given some instructions. Not a big deal. But this is important. Because he's not giving general instructions like, hey, if you want to go to DHC, take Broward, you're going to see that 7-Eleven and the parking lot's on the right. It's not what he's doing here. Theologians will tell you that in this moment, Jesus is using divine power in some form or fashion. At some level, he is seeing the future, and he's saying, when you get there, you're going to see a man. But what's so interesting about this is that in this point in history, men did not carry water. That was solely a woman's job. And in fact, we've spoken about stories here about women going to the wells to fetch water. That is what women did at this time. So the fact that a man is now carrying water, that's, that's a flag to say something's different here. In fact, what's going on here is now God is stepping into history and beginning to line up events, orchestrating it all for the coming crucifixion. So Jesus continues. He says, at the house where that guy enters, say to the owner, the teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? He will take you upstairs to a large room that is already set up. Again, this idea that things are just being orchestrated behind the scenes. That is where you should prepare our meal. So the two disciples went into the city and found everything just as Jesus had said and prepared the Passover meal there. Now I'm going to be skipping a couple verses, getting us to today's greatest hit. As they were eating, they were now having dinner, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, take this and eat it, for this is my body. There is today's greatest tip. So you have to understand that what these guys are doing right now, Jesus and his disciples, they're not just having dinner. We know we call it the Last Supper, but they are celebrating Passover. They're celebrating a 1,300-year-old holiday. And Passover is an extremely important ceremony for the Jewish people. 
and is a highly structured, highly ritualized event. Now, this week, I called up my friend Erica, who is Jewish, and I said, hey, I'm doing this Passover thing at church. Can you just confirm the details of what I'm reading here? Is this right? Am I understanding this correct? And she goes, no, that is absolutely correct. Passover is very important. We, we come together at dinner. It is highly structured. Every single person at that dinner is given a um, reading that they must read. The youngest people at the table, usually their children, they are given questions, and they must ask those questions to the adults. And everybody knows the script. Everybody knows the questions. Everybody knows the reading. It is all highly structured. Everybody knows what's going on and what's taking place. And all of a sudden, for the first time in history, these disciples are hearing Jesus say, take this and eat this. This is my body. He, he's changing the script. He's changing everything that these guys had known. For us, it would be like somebody changing the happy birthday song. Everybody knows happy birthday. We know the words. We know the melody. All of a sudden, you've got that guy who's changing it. And you go, what, what, what are you talking about? Your body, your body, what, what is this? But before they could raise their hands and say, what are you talking about, Jesus? He just continues to plow ahead. He says, do this in remembrance of. At this point, it's, oh, okay, Jesus, we don't, we don't need you to tell us what we're doing this in remembrance of. We, we've been eating the unleavened bread as Jewish people now since we were children. For 1,300 years, we've been doing this. We know that we are doing this in remembrance of the time when God saved the Jews from Egypt. And the scripture doesn't say this, but I like to imagine Jesus kind of smiling at this point and going, yeah, that's, that's gonna change. Now, you're gonna do this in remembrance of me. And that's a big deal. And if you're not Jewish in the room, you may not understand how big of a deal this is, but, but I'm actually surprised that the disciples didn't get up and leave. It's that offensive. It would be like me, and there's not really a great analogy, but it would be like me standing up here on this stage come November and saying, hey, guys, in about a month, when it's December 24th, we're actually going to celebrate my birthday instead. Because that's essentially what Jesus did in this moment. He is stepping into history. He is changing this ceremony. He's saying from this point forward, Passover is about me. Dinner continues, probably awkwardly, I have to imagine, and it says, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is. And again, you know the dinner table, like Erica said. Everybody knows what the cups are. I've got to imagine the disciples saying, Jesus, we understand. We know what the cup is. See, Erica was telling me that at a Passover dinner, every person must drink four cups of wine. And you drink those cups of wine at specific times of the evening. And those cups of wine are linked back to a certain part in the original Passover account. And these disciples, they knew that. They had been counting. They had one. They had two. This was now their third cup of wine. They understand that this cup is the cup that shows the promise that God would redeem them. And Jesus holds up this cup and says, this cup is the new covenant. Well, that's not in the script. That's something very different. And he doesn't just say this is a covenant. He's saying the new covenant. He's saying tonight, something new is starting. Tonight, this cup represents the new covenant. And see, if the disciples had been paying attention at Sunday school, which they had, they would know exactly what he's talking about. 
Because 700 years earlier, the great Jewish prophet Jeremiah spoke about this. He said that there would come a time when God would replace the current covenant that he had with the Jews, and he would give them a new covenant. And I pulled up the scripture so you could read it with your own eyes. In 650 BC, 700 years earlier, Jeremiah said this, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah, he continues. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. He goes, it's not gonna be like that covenant at all. With all the rules, with all the regulations that were nearly impossible for anybody to follow, for anybody to accomplish, it will be completely different. Instead, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. It's gonna be intimate. It's gonna be personal. It's gonna be Jesus. So with that knowledge now of what the new covenant is that Jeremiah prophesied about, let's go back to the dinner. When Jesus holds it up and says, this is the new covenant. Do you understand what this cup now represents from this moment forward? And then it really takes a turn. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And Matthew, in his gospel, adds, for the forgiveness of sin. I have to imagine the disciples going, in your blood, Jesus, what are you, what are you talking about? You're, you're, you're standing right in front of us. You're completely healthy. What do you mean in your blood that's poured out? As many times as Jesus tried to tell these guys that he would have to die, it just never registered. And it wouldn't be for another 24 hours until these guys saw him hanging on that cross, that they would know exactly what he's talking about. But in this moment, when Jesus holds up that cup, calling it the new covenant, he is bringing together all of history. See, thousands of years earlier, God started the story with the Jewish people with a man named Abraham. And he went to Abraham and he goes, I understand that you're really old, but you're gonna have a son. In fact, you're going to have so many descendants that they will populate the entire world, more or less. That is the Jewish people. And through your descendants, the entire world will be blessed. And that's Jesus. And in this moment, Jesus is letting them know that God is starting a new covenant with the entire world that he is now closing an entire chapter of history and opening up a brand new one. And all over that city that night in Jerusalem, Jews everywhere were celebrating the fact that 1,300 years earlier, a lamb had been slaughtered, that the blood was put over their ancestors' doorposts, and those Jews had been saved from death. And in that upper room, Jesus is now saying, from this point forward, you're celebrating a new lamb. From this point forward, you are going to be celebrating what John said about me the very first time he saw me. Look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When dinner was finished, disciples and Jesus went out to the garden and Jesus was betrayed by Judas. He was arrested, he was tried, and the next day he was crucified. His body was broken, his blood was spilled, and that lamb of God 
that John spoke about had been slaughtered. And in that moment on that cross, the new covenant had officially been ratified. A promise that God made in the Garden of Eden that he would one day send a savior that was echoed to Abraham had now been completed in the death of Jesus. And because Jesus died on that cross, the entire world now had the opportunity to have a personal relationship with God the Father. And it's because of what happened on that fateful night in that upper room in Jerusalem that Christians for 2,000 years have been celebrating the Lord's Supper. Now, I want to give you a little bit of a historical teaching on the Lord's Supper because I think it's important for us to understand how we got to where we are today when we're going to be celebrating communion or the Lord's Supper because it didn't get here easily. So after Jesus died and he was resurrected, the early church began to take root and it started to spread. And those early Christians began to take the Lord's Supper. They began to take communion. And word got out about what they were doing. And it actually led to Roman rumors. Now, the Roman government was not really happy about Christians. And they would send spies and moles to begin to infiltrate Christian communities, trying to root them out, kill them, stop them, and persecute them. And what's interesting is that when these Roman officials infiltrated Christian communities and they watched them taking the Lord's Supper, they were very, very confused because they watched them eating bread and they watched them drinking wine, but they were calling it the body and flesh and they were calling it blood and, and, and the Romans didn't understand. And in fact, they actually began to believe that those Christians were practicing cannibalism. I was able to find a second century primary source of a Roman official who had gotten a spy into a Christian church. And the account that I'm going to read to you is him trying to explain what he's witnessing when he's watching those early Christians take communion. I'm going to warn you, it's gory. And it's propaganda that was used to try to persecute Christians. But it's just very interesting to see this ancient practice through the eyes of a pagan Roman. He writes this. An infant covered over with meal. He's already confused. He's already thinking about Jesus, the baby, and Christmas. He's mixing it all up. He goes, an infant covered in meal, that's the bread. An infant covered over with meal, that it may deceive the unwary, is placed before him. Speaking of Christians. This infant is slain with dark and secret wounds, continues. Thirstily, oh horror, they lick up its blood. Eagerly. They divide its limbs. By this victim, that's Jesus, they are pledged together. With this consciousness of wickedness, they are covenanted to mutual silence. Minutius Felix Octavius, 197 AD. It's gross. But if you look at what he's writing, if you try to sort through the confusion of what he sees, you can tell what the Christians are doing. They're drinking the wine, the blood. They're eating the bread, what he calls the limbs. And I think it's so interesting that he even caught on to the fact that it's all about a covenant. Jesus' words about the wine being his blood, the bread being his body, was confusing. And that confusion continued into history and later led to actual division within Christianity. Now, I'm going to give you the fastest church history lesson of your life. But if you pay attention, I think this might be helpful. 
After Jesus died for 1,500 years, think 1,500 AD, 500 years ago, there was only one church, the Catholic Church. Now, if you grew up Catholic, you know that when you went to church, you went for Mass. Now, Mass is not a different name for service. We have a 9 o'clock and a 10.30 service. When you're speaking about Mass, you are specifically speaking about the ritual of taking communion. So the main event to going to, commun- to, going to Mass is not the music. The main event is not the sermon. The main event is taking communion. Now, in Catholic theology, when we are speaking about the bread, when we are speaking about the wine, they believe in what is called transubstantiation, a long word that just means a change in substance. They believe that when you see the priest in the beginning, of, in the front of the church, and he prays over the elements, when he prays over the bread, and he prays over the wine, it literally becomes the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. It changes substance. Yes, it looks like bread. Yes, it looks like wine. But at the deepest substance, it is the actual, literal body and blood of Jesus. And so when a Catholic goes forward to receive communion, to receive the wine, they are physically eating the body and the blood of Jesus. But around the year 1500, a couple of Catholic priests got their hands on a Bible in their own language. Some got it in German. Some got it in English. And for the first time in their life, they actually understood what they were reading. Because at this point in history, the vast majority of Catholic priests, believe it or not, were unable to read their own Latin Bibles. And as they could read the scripture, as you can read it today in their own language, it began to dawn on them that there were some things inside the Bible that was not lining up with what they were teaching in the church. And so they got together and they, they went to the Pope and they went to the Cardinals and said, hey, we have to have a conversation. I think we're going to make some changes because we're teaching some things that is not in the Scripture. And the Pope and the Cardinal says, no, 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 no. We're not changing a thing. And that led to what is now known as the Protestant Reformation. And in 1517, thereabouts, the church, for the first time in the history of the world, split. And we had two branches, Catholics and the Protestants, who protested against particular Catholic doctrine. And one of the main things that took place in this Protestant Reformation was a disagreement as to what actually happened in communion. Because when these priests were reading it in their own language for the first time, they read it, they go, we don't think this is actually the body and the blood. We actually think this is a symbolic memorial. Because when we read other teaching from Jesus, it's clear that all throughout his life, he uses analogy, he uses metaphor, At one point, he called himself a gate. You don't actually think he was a gate, do you? And that was a major point of contention. Now, I teach you all this because it's important to understand that communion is important. Those words that Jesus spoke so many thousands of years ago led to persecution by Romans. Those words led to a split in Christianity that still exists to this day. But whether you're Catholic or Protestant, whether you believe it is literally the body of Jesus or figuratively the body of Jesus, all groups do it for the same reason, to remind themselves that Jesus is Lord, that God promised that he would send a Savior, 
that his son Jesus was born of a woman, walked this earth alongside us, taught us how to live, and died on that cross so that we could be forgiven of sin. I want to invite Christian up here on the stage if he's around. Um, Some of you may have been used to taking communion by coming forward. Some of you may have come from a background where communion is passed around. History teaches us that the earliest Christians probably did it around a dining room table, something like that. Here at DHC, we like to do it a little bit more personal. Right below your chair, by your front foot and the front leg, you're going to find the elements. It's a little cup and wafer. Don't do anything with it. Inside that is not wine, it's juice. Now, this, is not, this is not us making some kind of theological statement against alcohol. In fact, we believe the Bible speaks about the fact that alcohol is fine to consume, but we understand that people in our community, perhaps even in this church, struggle with alcohol. We want to be sensitive to that so that everyone can take it together. Now, there's an important question that might be on your mind, and it's this. Who should take communion? Because the message of Jesus is for everyone. Downtown Harbor Church is for everyone. But communion is not for everyone. Paul, who wrote over half of the New Testament, one day was writing a letter to a local church, helping them understand how to take communion, how to start in their church, how to do it properly. And he walked them through the entire story that we did today. But then he says something very interesting. He says to them, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that's key for us today to understand. This means that communion is for Jesus' followers. He says that when you drink the wine and you eat the bread, you are actively proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. You are letting yourself, those around you, and the world know that you have said yes to Jesus. Because of what happened on that cross 2,000 years ago, you have been forgiven of sin. Now, if you're not a Christian in the room, right? We've created this church specifically for you so you can feel comfortable and learn at your own pace. For the next couple of moments, I would just invite you to observe what a 2,000-year-old ritual looks like in 2019 in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. But maybe you're in this room today and you have been investigating the claims of Jesus, perhaps for quite some time now. And your faith has been growing. But maybe you haven't taken that last step yet. I want to boldly encourage you. Let today be a memory marker of when you handed your life over to the man who handed his life over for you. What does that look like? How does that all I think if we were to ask John, who was the best friend of Jesus, who was there from the beginning, who was there at the Lord's Supper, who was there at the end, how does this happen? He might point to his greatest hit and say, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever, no matter who you are, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what the world has said about you, whoever believes in him, trusts in him, leans on him, says yes to him, shall not perish, but have eternal life. 
Now, I have to imagine there's someone in this room here today who was at that moment, who's heard the stories, who may not understand it all, but there is just this powerful sense inside of them that Jesus is Lord. I would encourage you, make today the day that you say yes to the creator of the universe. That today could be the day that you took your first communion. So how does this happen? At its core, communion is a time of contemplation. Paul says that throughout this experience, we should be examining our own hearts. And so while Christian leads us, I'm gonna encourage you just in your own space, between you and the Lord, whether that's meditation, prayer, reflect on who Jesus is. Use that as a time to unburden yourself to the Lord, to ask for forgiveness because we've all messed up, to lay those sins, to lay those troubles at his feet. And when you feel led in your own time, you'd open it up and you could take the wafer. And as you eat that bread, think about Jesus' body that was broken for you. And as you drink that juice, think about Jesus' blood that was spilled out specifically for your forgiveness. Use the remaining time to reflect on the power and the forgiveness of our Lord and Savior Jesus. And when Christian is finished, I'm gonna come back up here and lead us in prayer.
Father. I want to thank you that we have the opportunity to come here today. Lord, that you have sustained us through 2,000 years, through persecution, through division, Lord, but that today we could come together as a community, as friends, as family, to celebrate the death of your son, Jesus, whose body was broken for us, whose blood was spilled for us, that we could be forgiven, that we could be made right with the creator of this universe. Thank you for that gift. Help us, Lord, to leave today emboldened by this message, set free by that gift of life. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name.